Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time at the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it is Thursday, May 4th. Wow, man, time is just slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. 2023. Here's a headline story before we begin our conversation with my two distinguished guests. This story is just breaking. I'm reading it off my phone. Very millennialistic of me. It's not even a newspaper that I'm reading. It's a phone. I'm showing my guests that it is a phone. The guests are very impressed. They're like, dang, man, you know how to read on a phone? This story is just breaking in the New York Times. Folks, I can't do this with a straight face. I, 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 I'm i going to read this story, but it's like, Republicans, you guys are worthless. Okay? I'm just going to, I know, I know I've been going on and on all week about Michael Joseph Madigan and the Madigan Four and how justice was done in the state of Illinois. We're like a little bubble within this country. You know, Democrats, when they do wrong, they pay a price. These guys will probably go to jail. Michael Joseph Madigan will be prosecuted. Ed Burke will be prosecuted. Okay? He is being prosecuted. He should probably go to jail for being Donald Trump's tax lawyer, but that's a whole other issue. He should go to jail for being a racist in the 1980s against Sarah Washington, but that's another issue. He'll go to he'll he'll face prosecution for something. In Illinois, when Democrats do wrong, they are punished. In the rest of the country, MAGA land, wherever MAGA is in charge, there are no rules for Republicans. And all those little Republicans in the state house who go on and on about Michael Joseph Madigan and how mean he is. You know what? Let me just say this. Mike Boss, he's currently a congressman. My two distinguished guests are smart enough to know who Mike Boss is. He's currently a right-wing MAGA congressman, okay, from downstate Illinois. About 12 years ago, he made a name for himself, throwing a hissy fit, a colossal hissy fit on the Florida General Assembly. My two distinguished guests may be too young to know about this, but you can find it on YouTube. He threw his papers in the air. I'm sick of this, he said. It's a hilarious. Even Michael Madigan. Michael Madigan. Did Michael Madigan expel him from the chamber for bad behavior? No. But in Tennessee, they kick out Democrats. When Democrats dare to speak up against Republicans. And when Montana, they kick out Democrats. What? I don't know. When they say something that offends their little sensibilities. Okay. Two sets of rules, one for Democrats, one for Republicans. And now this story, breaking news in the New York Times. It's all over the Internet. It's not just the New York Times. Justice Thomas's friend defends failure to disclose tuition payment by Harlan Crow. What a freaking joke. Harlan Crow is the mega gazillionaire, good buddy of Justice Clarence Thomas. I don't know. He he flew him around the country on his on his uh, private jet. He uh, f- took him on 
cruises on his yacht. He, I can help buy a house where I think it's Clarence Thomas's grandmother lived. Now it turns out he helped pay the tuition for Clarence Thomas's kid. Now, I don't know how any of this is legal because Crow uh, is supports uh, right wing uh, groups that come before the, the Supreme Court all the time. So there's definitely a conflict of interest. If it were in Illinois, they would be held to pay for it. But again, like I said, there's two sets of rules, uh, one for Democrats in Illinois, one for Republicans anywhere. But here's the funny thing. The spin attempted by Clarence Thomas's pal. Let's check this one out, distinguished guys. This one is just a piece of work. Uh, they finally, uh, by the way, shout out to Politico. They've been breaking this story. And Clarence Thomas getting his gifts from Crow for a while now. Uh, in his statement, the friend of Clarence Thomas and of a former official for the just for the Trump administration argued that the justice was not required to report the tuition. He pointed to a part of the 1978 law that said judges must disclose gifts to dependent children who are defined as a son, daughter, stepson, or stepdaughter. And he stressed that it was a great, <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't say this in a straight face. It was a great nephew, so it does not qualify. And here's his quote. Palota is his name. This malicious story shows nothing except for the fact that the Thomases and the Crows are kind, generous, and loving people who tried to help this young man. No, it doesn't show they're kind, generous at all. It showed he had his big paw out getting a handout from his rich pal to pay for his his guardian's tuition. And as such, he should have reported it at the very least. He probably shouldn't have taken it, but he, he should have reported it at the very least. And in that same article, they uh, quote, the New York Times did all these um, uh, ethicists and who uh, totally uh, take a contrary point of view, a different point of view, I should say. Uh, and here's the, the kicker. As the legal guardian of the child, Justice Thomas had assumed responsibility for his education, enrolled him in a private school, and otherwise would have to pay tuition. There is no ambiguity here, said Kathleen Clark, an ethics law expert at Washington University. He paid the tuition, which was a gift to Thomas, because it helped Thomas financially fulfill his responsibilities as a guardian. MAGA, come on, admit it. You guys don't play by the rules. You constantly rewrite the rules. And then whenever you're called on the carpet for breaking the rules, you cry like little babies. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves. It's been so long since they've been on the show. They've probably forgotten what a good Ben Jarofsky rant and rail sounds like. Well, they just heard one. I'm going to start with distinguished guests whose initials are JK. <laughs> Hi, Ben. Uh, Jacob Kaplan here, executive director of the Cook County Democratic Party. Happy to be back on with you. Uh, and distinguished guest whose initials are DP. Uh, it's it's an honor to be with you, Ben. Uh, Dan Pobyshelsky, one of the commissioners for the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago. Uh, always an honor to be here with the great Ben Jurafsky and Jacob as part of the original political know-it-alls team. That is correct. The political know-it-alls have been coming on my show uh, ever since I had one. They stayed with me when I got fired. God bless them. Uh, and they followed me over to podcasting. Well, it's been a while. Young Daniel is now a water rec commissioner. We're going to have to call him commissioner uh, on all due respect. And uh, when I first met young Danny, it was, I forget how many years ago, uh, he was a union activist, a union organizer, yeah. I want to say. Yes, yes. Uh, UFCW and- 1546. That is correct. Good. Your memory's better than mine. Uh, and you guys uh, interviewed me. You're young. You're millennials. Uh, you did not live through the Harold Washington years, but you had an obsession that I shared about Harold Washington. We'll get into that. Uh, you interviewed me about a documentary you're making on Harold Washington. I believe that's how we met. Uh, anyway, neither here nor there. Before we get started, uh, Jacob, your thoughts, your executive director of Cook County Democratic Party. Uh, Democrats have paid a price in Illinois for corruption. They go to jail. Uh, Tony Preckwinkle was not elected mayor of Chicago, the city of Chicago in 2019, in part because of her connections to Ed Burke uh, and the Democratic Party. Democrats pay a price. But apparently, Republicans are free to do whatever they want, Jacob Kaplan. There are no rules. There are they don't abide by any kind of uh, order or law, even though they profess to be in favor of law and order. Uh, do you think I'm being too unfair to Republicans? Go. Not at all. I mean, there's there's a ton of hypocrisy here, right? I mean, that they, they say they're for law and order, but uh, yet again and again, we see they don't feel like they have to follow any rules. And that's especially true with the Supreme Court and uh, and with Justice Thomas. I mean, this, 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 uh, 
this this paying for the private school tuition of somebody that Thomas himself said he was raising this person as a son. I mean, I guess, yes, you, yes, you could say technically it doesn't fall under the, uh, I guess, whatever disclosure rules they have as a uh, close uh, relative or, or what have you. But still, I mean, come on, anybody in a situation like that in any uh, legal position would say you should disclose that. And it's not just that, like you said, it's other uh, donations. It's buying this house that I think his grandmother now lives in and uh, all these things from Harlan Crow and probably others that we don't even know about. And, you know, at, at a time when the uh, the trust in institutions is really at a very uh, low level, especially for the Supreme Court, uh, when you have these things that keep coming out about these justices that feel like they're above the law, even though they're supposed to be the ones uh, upholding the law and, and telling us what the law is. I mean, it's just, it's incredibly hypocritical and it does seem to be Republicans that are often uh, guilty of it the most. Uh, Dan, on the water wreck, I, are there any Republicans on the water wreck district? I'm trying to think. Oh, no, there haven't been in decades. Okay, decades. I was going to say, you have to deal with Republicans on a base, on a regular basis. Maybe you don't. Uh, do you have anything you want to add to this before I uh, move on to another topic? Uh, you know, I wanted to add, you know, both Jacob and I, you're very well aware, uh, we are such history buffs. And, uh, you know, Ben, this is just a retro flashback, you know take a look at uh, all the um, weird things that oligarchs collected back in the Gilded Age. Hey, you know, um, you want to collect a Supreme Court justice, you know? Uh, <laughs> um, not many, not many to be had, right? It's, there's, o- there's only nine of them, right? <laughs> so uh, something that I'm sure he can, he can show off with his friends. Uh, <laughs> not met- I don't know how many of them have any Supreme Court justices, but uh, Harlan Crow certainly has one, doesn't he? All right. So uh, before we leave this topic, I'm going to ask you both this. Uh, We talk about this a lot in the show and uh, in in other episodes. I believe that there should be a bipartisan initiative in the Senate uh, to call Clarence Thomas before the Senate uh, to answer questions about, uh, at the very least, (laughs) his lack of adequate record keeping and reporting uh, in terms of the gifts he's got. And then the gifts themselves and the connection between the man who gave him the gifts uh, and the various right-wing groups that come before the Supreme Court all the time uh, on various uh, cases. So uh, I believe it should be a bipartisan, like in the Watergate hearings from the early 70s and uh, with Richard Nixon, when it was a bipartisan uh, effort. Obviously, we don't live in bipartisan times, so it's totally up to the Democrats to do this. I get the pushback from uh, some guests on my show that say, Ben, uh, the Democrats have to watch it. There'll be a counterstrike if they're too aggressive with Clarence Thomas. They're already prosecuting Donald Trump uh, in uh, New York for rape. They're prosecuting Donald Trump in uh, in New York for um, illegal uh, covering up uh, payoffs to Stormy Daniels. There's potential prosecutions on other fronts having to deal with the insurrection and vote uh, int- voter intimidation in Georgia. You can only push so far bef- if there's a backlash. Jacob Kaplan, do you subscribe to that very cautious viewpoint? Uh, no, I, I think I think it's it's a it's a common sense thing, and I think if you polled the general public, they're uh, there are four more ethics regulations and uh, and 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 things like that around judges and the Supreme Court. So I don't see what the downside is to making this a big issue. I know, uh, you know, Senator Durbin, who's chair of the Judiciary Committee, has sent a letter to Chief Justice John, John Roberts asking if he would appear, and he declined. And they sent a letter back, I guess, saying that uh, you know that they they'll answer questions by I think via letters, but they won't appear. I guess the one thing is if you did subpoena a Supreme Court justice to appear in Congress and they decide not to show up because they say they're a separate branch, you create a whole inter interbranch separation of powers issue that may overtake everything else. But one thing we could do, and I realize, of course, Republicans are control of the House. I mean, so who knows if they go along with it, but call their bluff. I mean, why don't we propose an ethics package for the federal judiciary and for, that would apply to Supreme Court justices? There's nothing preventing Congress and the Senate from proposing what disclosure rules the Supreme Court should abide by. I mean, the Congress has the authority to put checks on the judicial branch. So I don't understand why we don't have hearings, even without the justices themselves, just have hearings in general about what what uh, disclosure rules there should be for these justices and then propose a bill. That's what I do. Dan? I'd, I'd like to remind uh, folks, look at how close we were 
to retaining power in the House and how different things would be right now if that was the case. Uh, it was uh, the narrowest of margins. Everyone had been thinking, ourselves included, that there was going to be this big red wave. Instead, what do we have? We had the, the, the pink puddle. And, um, you know, think if, if for example, if, uh, you know, Ron, De, uh, Ron DeSantis hadn't forced through um, the, the ultimate gerrymandering, where he gerrymandered it even further than the Republican legislature had wanted it, right? Um, that could have spelled, uh, to a large degree, the difference and that re- the majority of the Republicans have currently. And we wouldn't be facing this problem because we have a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate that would be able to put through, exactly as Jacob had said, these common sense reforms. However, um, and this is one of the things that, that really has differentiates MAGA is where um, straight up lawlessness, right? Whether we're talking about January 6th, uh, when we're talking about uh, a lot of the behavior that you've seen uh, from uh, these folks like this, where criminality is not only ignored, it is celebrated. Absolutely. Uh, Donald Trump has uh, been um, uh, essentially uh, paying homage in uh, uh, his rallies with the music he plays to the insurrectionists, uh, even though uh, four of Proud Boys today, another breaking news story, were convicted of sedition. Uh, and, um, all right, we're going to stay federal before we move local before I ask you about your, your thoughts on the, on the recent campaign and the parallels to Harold Washington. We might, we might as well keep it here. Uh, Jacob, I believe my memory serves me correct. The last time you were on the show was before, uh, the, um, November election and we were making predictions. I can't remember what your predictions are. I'm just going to assume you got them all right. Uh, and <laughs> we'll say that. <laughs> we'll sure. Say that. But yeah. at the time, Santos was looking pretty strong. And uh, the talk was the Republicans are going to quietly replace uh, uh, Trump with DeSantis. They're going to do it quietly because they don't want to antagonize Trump uh, and have him turn against DeSantis. They're going to pretend like Trump didn't exist and go with DeSantis. Uh, It is a different political world, to put it mildly, as we have this conversation in May uh, than it was when we had the last conversation in October, I think it was, uh, Jacob. It is DeSantis has imploded. Uh, Donnie Trump is number one in the overall Republican polls. CNN, to its utter disgrace, is about to give him a primetime uh, slot for a town hall meeting, uh, even in the wake of the, the trial, the uh, jury verdict in Washington on sedition. Um, talk about, in your opinion, the uh, the Republican uh, right, race for president. Uh, do you think that it's true that I said that DeSantis has imploded and that Donald Trump is definitely the front runner and in most likelihood will be the Republican nominee? I would say he is definitely the front runner now. And if, if I had to, if the election were held now, he more than likely would be the nominee. I, but a lot of things can happen between now and the, uh, you know, the primaries next year. So uh, I don't know. I mean, he faces so much legal exposure, not just in in New York, but in Georgia, presuming that there's an indictment coming down there. And of course, there could be a indictment or something coming down uh, on the federal level as well. And, you know, all this legal trouble uh, isn't good for him. So does there become a point uh, when it, it just becomes too much to deal with and some and a l- larger number of primary voters say we need somebody else? Now, the issue is, of course, that the way the Republicans have set things up is all Trump needs to do is get a plurality in, in states to win them. It's, a, it's There's no superdelegates like there are on the Democratic side or there's no really mechanism for the party to stop him from continually winning primaries by 35 or 40 percent even as long as he comes in number one in different states. So I do think compared to a few months ago, uh, DeSantis is, is, is not doing well. You know, he was kind of on a rise for a while and it seems like he has imploded to a degree. And uh, the more people see him on on TV or otherwise, the more uh, they don't like him. And, you know, Trump is out there. And like you said, he is coming on the CNN town hall, which I think is ridiculous, too. But uh, they apparently decided to to give him that platform. But I mean, regardless of that, let's face it, a lot of the Democrat or Republican primary base is MAGA and they like him. So uh, I, I do think he's the likely nominee. But again, there's that caveat where if the legal problems add up and they come to a head and, and major things happen and it's, it looks like he's going to have to be campaigning while in and out of a courtroom constantly. I mean, that's 
how's he going to do that? So we'll see. Dan, your thoughts on the Republican primary? Well, so um, I have been saying for months when people were counting Donald Trump as uh, going to be eclipsed by Ron DeSantis, because sure, we're familiar, the famous Republican line that Democrats fall in love with their presidential nominee, Republicans fall in line, right? And that um, in the with the well-oiled machine of the Fox echo chamber, that the Republicans would simply, and their donor class would uh, put a brick on Trump's reelection, and that we would see Ron DeSantis as the next nominee. And to me, it seemed amnesia, because Donald Trump was never supposed to be the Republican nominee. And yet in 2016, from dynasties to, to darlings, he obliterated them all. And <clears throat> this is a testament to his talent. Sure, the pundit class had fallen in love with Ron DeSantis and not so much his speaking ability because he's not a charismatic person. It's more along the policies, right? He was a person who had his, he, he did have his hand, like his finger on the pulse of the issues that really motivate much of the Republican Party's base today. But he himself does not animate that. And I think we're seeing that. And just like Jacob said, uh, there's a reason he's a political know-it-all. Uh, he puts it so concisely so well. Um, we don't know what will happen. But if the election were today, right now, uh, Donald J. Trump would be the nominee. And there's a lot to say that that is what will happen. All right, I'm going to throw a curveball at you guys and get your response to this. It's just popping out of my brain as we speak. Lord knows what it'll look like when it uh, uh, comes out of my mouth. Uh, but I, right before we went on the air, I read an article uh, by, uh, about Chris Christie, former uh, governor of New Jersey. He, took, he attacked Donald Trump. Donald Trump has already said he's not going to. There's a, a Republican debate coming up in August. This this election cycle is literally at our doorsteps, Jacob. There's a, re, a Republican debate in August. Trump has already announced he's not going to participate. He, he's so far ahead in the polls. He doesn't want to give uh, any credence to the others by allowing them to stand in his limelight. Chris Christie bashed him. And so part of my belief that DeSantis uh, has stumbled uh, it's not just because he's an uh, insane MAGA lunatic uh, with his proposals. It's because he has no guts. He lets Donald Trump make fun of him, mock him, tease him. He takes it all. MAGA people believe if you punch someone, they want someone to punch back. And he's doing the rope-a-dope. That's boxing term, ladies and gentlemen. I won't go back and explain it. But he's absorbing the blows as he leans back on the rope. He's ignoring Trump. He's hoping that the, the voters will rally with him and they'll ignore Trump. You can't ignore Trump. And so I'm throwing out here this radical notion that if you're going to beat Donald Trump, even in MAGA, and yes, Jacob, you're right. The rules are all in Donald Trump's favor. Those winner-take-all rules are insane. Uh, those rules are all in Donald Trump's uh, favor. But if you're going to beat Donald Trump, even with MAGA, you got to go after Donald Trump. You can't pretend that he's not in the race. You can't kiss his ass. You can't say, oh, he's the victim of uh, political uh, overreach with when he's being convicted. You have to use or indicted. You have to use those indictments against him the way Lori Lightfoot used the indictments against Ed Burke against uh, Tony Preckwinkle. She wasn't indicted, but she used it against him. It was rough and tough politics. If you just ignore the tumble, Jacob, you're just conceding. You're essentially conceding the race to Donald Trump. I believe to beat Donald Trump, you go after Donald Trump. Your thoughts? I, I agree. And isn't this what, exactly what happened in 2016, where everyone was afraid uh, to go after him in all the debates, and he would throw all these punches, and nobody would really punch back, and ultimately it was too late. And it seems like that is happening again. Now, maybe... These debates that start in August, uh, clearly, even if Trump doesn't show up, he's going to be the topic of them. And they'll all be, you know, going back and forth about uh, Trump. and They'll be asked questions about him. So I got to think that some of them, whether it's DeSantis or Nikki Haley or whoever else ends up running, <laughs> announcing by that point, uh, you know, they're going to focus on Trump. So and something tells me that he may feel left out when he's not there on the stage and maybe he'll decide to show up to some of the later debates. So uh, I don't know. 
But uh, I, I do agree. People got to start throwing punches at him and saying, why are we going to back a losing candidate, a, a president who lost the 2020 election, who's under all this legal exposure and uh, indictments, uh, and have him be our nominee again when we keep losing? I mean, 2016, by many accounts, was a fluke. And, and uh, you know, from their perspective, I'd be, I'd be afraid from to have Trump be the nominee again. But it just seems like, again, it's the base. So we'll see. Dan, go after Trump? Or do you think that's uh, just... It's you're you're having a logical conversation with a base that's in love with a candidate. Um, the Republican Party, thanks to allies like Fox News and the right wing echo chamber, have cultivated this base, have cultivated this attitude. How are you going to change this? Especially given the fact that in the aftermath of the election, what do they do? They played along with Trump's assertions that the election was stolen because Trump understood instinctively they want a winner. If he was a loser, then guess what? His appeal is gone, which is why he had, he had to embrace the fallacy that it was stolen from him. And the fact that they went along with him, you reap what you sow. More sympathetic, I could not be. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's uh, go to uh, uh, Chicago. I'd love to get your thoughts on this one. Uh, I call them the political know-it-alls because they know everything about politics. It's sort of jest. I think I once caught them in a trivia question that they didn't know one time many years ago. It's been known uh, to happen known occasionally. To happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just, just uh, I got to get this. Anytime I have any political question, I either text or call Jacob Kaplan. For a young guy, his knowledge of politics is really second to none. Uh, and plus, he's younger brain than mine, so he hasn't forgotten everything I've forgotten. Uh, that's my problem. Uh, like the other day, Jacob, don't laugh at me. I had a brain freeze. We were talking about Kim Fox and her legacy. And I I did not remember that she beat Anita Alvarez in 2016. I was like, wait, did Anita Alvarez not run for re-election? I got her mixed up with, with uh, Rom. <laughs> oh, boy. Like, Total brain freeze. Um, I know. How can I forget that? But uh, uh, anyway, uh Brandon Johnson defeated Paul Vallis roughly 52 to 48 percent. You were shocked, uh, Ben. Shocked. I, I, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was not feeling because I, I spend most of my time talking to Chicago journalists uh, who all predicted Vallis was going to win. There is no more jaded bunch when it comes to lefty politics and Chicago journalists. They're absolutely conditioned to believe that lefties can't win in this city. Uh, and so if you talk to them, if you spend any time with them, they go, Ben, they can't win. Who are you kidding? Huh? Uh, and uh, <laughs> Harold Washington caught them off guard, too, uh, back in 83. The historical parallels between Brandon Johnson versus Vallis uh, and Harold uh, versus uh, Bernie Epton in uh, 1983. I could talk on and on about this. I, I, I think the history is absolutely important, and Chicagoans should learn from their history. They seemed more intent, Jacob, on forgetting their history or never knowing it in the first place. You can't forget what you never knew. Um, but nonetheless, uh, let's take a bit of a deep dive here. In your opinion, what were the historical parallels that you saw between the 83 uh, Washington-Epton race and uh, the 2023 uh, Johnson-Vallis race? Oh, there's there's a lot. And I was thinking about this a lot during the, the campaign. I mean, starting with the fact, you know, 40 years <laughs> almost to the day uh, uh, later, uh, that these two elections happened. But I, I think, number one, it's the fact that they started off with a defeat of an incumbent mayor who was a woman. So in, in 83, of course, it was Jane Byrne, and this time around it was Lori Lightfoot. So that was a big parallel. And then you end up in this second-round race with uh, with with the uh, black candidate against the, uh, the white conservative candidate. Uh, so similarly to 83, where you had Harold Washington and Bernie Epton, and this election you had uh, Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis. So there were a lot of similarities. Now, I will say, I don't think, unlike Bernie Upton's campaign, and of course, Bernie Upton himself would never, uh, uh, always tried to stay somewhat above the fray, but the people around him in his campaign certainly had a lot of racist dog whistles going on. And of course, the famous before it's too late uh, phrase. So you didn't quite see such overt uh, racism, I don't think, as you did in 83, but it was still there in, in, in some of the uh, Vallis supporters. And also kind of this, this, uh, perception among folks that, oh, we, we just got it. You know, again, they didn't actually say before it's too late, but you kind of 
got that impression from a lot of uh, people in in the more conservative uh, voter blocks in Chicago. And so there were a lot of similarities. And also, I would say in, in kind of the coalition that uh, that Brandon built for his win was in some ways similar to Harold's, of course, having uh, massive support in the black community. I mean, uh, Brandon got well over 80 uh, percent of the black vote, as did Harold. Also having at least split support among uh, the Hispanic community, similar to uh, what Harold did. And then, of course, uh, really the key was also support among uh, lakefront liberals. Now, it was a different set of, of kind of liberal white voters in this election than it was at 83. In 83, it was more, you know, really liberals that lived along the lakefront, whereas this time around, it was more kind of northwest side Milwaukee Avenue progressives, still a lot of lakefront liberals. I mean, the 49th Ward, the 48th Ward went heavily for Brandon Johnson, but you also had this new kind of corridor on the northwest side that was, has become a lot more progressive that supported Brandon heavily that you didn't have in, uh, in 83. And turnout-wise, it was a different election because in 83, you had something like 82 or 84% turnout in the, uh, it was a massive turnout in the, uh, in the, in the second round, Harold versus Epton, whereas this time around, we, we think we made it maybe to 40%. So uh, only half as much in terms of turnout as we had in 83, but still similar coalitions. So there are a lot of parallels, and I, I presume people will be writing about and studying uh, these two elections together for, for some time to come. Dan? I, I agree very much with Jacob. Uh, also, it, what's really interesting is that you had um, the, uh, with regards to the one-term mayors, the female mayors that you had, right, where uh, when they ascended into office, it was seen, oh, they're so powerful, right? Jane Byrne, because of having taken out uh, the running mayor, Mike Belandic, um, Lori Lightfoot, because of the fact that she had won with such a large margin. And yet they both, um, as outsiders, could not build a coalition for themselves and were adrift. Um, I think that you see those parallels. But um, I think also what you have is that there's been a hankering among the progressive left for just such a candidate. And the fact that right now you have not just locally, but nationally progressives who are looking and anticipating with such, with such hope that we can seal the deal. Um, what's important to remember is that um, Harold's untimely death um, cut that revolution short, right? Um, sure, you had the Verdoliac 29, but by 1987, um, uh, you had, uh, at the time of his death, he had a majority, Jacob, was it 40, 40 aldermen of the 50? Yeah, something along those something lines. Something like that. I mean, w w once once he got over 26 votes, everyone else kind of came along because it, was, exactly. it wasn't worth fighting anymore and, and on the once council. Once he got over 25. Yeah. And so... Yeah. Um, this is why um, people have been waiting to fulfill that legacy. And with Brandon Johnson, we really have that hope. Uh, one of the things that came to mind, Jacob, as well, uh, when you're talking about that Northwest Side progressives, uh, the 35th Ward uh, still playing a prominent role. The 35th Ward um, under Mike Holowinski played a prominent role um, in uh, the, that mayor. And I foresee for Alderman Rosa, um, as well as folks in the 35th Ward, Anthony Cazada and the United Neighbors of the 35th Ward playing a prominent role in this administration as well. All right. A few annotations uh, for what Dan said, for those uh, who are too young to understand his references. The running mayor, allusion to Michael Blavik and the fact that he was a jogger. Got to give Danny credit for remembering that. That's why he called him the running mayor. Michael Blavik jogged, and that was such a big thing in 1979 Chicago. He jogs, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Chicagoans, you guys are funny when you discover things. Uh, Michael a, that's a that's a blast from the past, too. Yes, I was about to say former state representative Mike Kalowinski, uh and uh, our early ally of Harold Washington's. It was such a big deal to find one white guy who was before Harold Washington in 83. That's how far we've come, I think. Uh, it wasn't as hard to find white people to support Brandon Johnson uh, in 03, in, in 23, excuse me. Holowinski had the guts to support Harold uh, before uh, Harold beat uh, Epton and then uh, Harold 
Holowinski, a former state rep. Uh, Harold made him vice mayor, one of his vice mayors. So Mike Holowinski, may he rest in peace. Danny, you mentioned Carlos. Uh, I'm going to throw a Carlos theory at you, and then uh, you respond, and then Jacob, you respond. Uh, Carlos uh, Ramirez Rosa, alderman of the 35th Ward, and Rosanna Rodriguez, uh, alderwoman of the 33rd Ward, were on the show uh, shortly after the election uh, to pound their chests and make fun of me uh, for uh, not having enough faith, which is fine. Uh, and so I asked Carlos and Rosanna uh, why the split in the Hispanic vote. Like there were some wards in the Southwest side that went strong, Hispanic majority wards that went strong for Vallis, but the Northwest side, there's a lot of Northwest side wards that went strong uh, for Brandon Johnson. And what they both said, organization, that there are strong grassroots organizations uh, on the Northwest side, the 35th ward in particular, the 33rd ward, uh, that just have a network of volunteers ready to go in the field. Dan, you just got done with an election yourself. You know a thing or two about the networks that exist in the city of Chicago. Uh, you are a down-ballot position, water wrecks. So you're really accounting on having field support in an election like that. You know, uh, that's where you really need the door knockers, et cetera. Do you agree with Carlos's uh, theory that the, the key difference uh, in, in between North Wards that went for uh, Vallis and wards that went f for Johnson was uh, the local organizations? 100%. I'd like to point out that you had organizations which certainly made a difference, uh, even in areas where Johnson did not win, because by being able to keep down the margins or trying to have the margins that Vallis had down, uh, this made an impact, right? So, for example, um, Similar to uh, the courage that uh, Mike Holowinski had, our good friend, State Senator Robert Martwick, he endorsed Brandon Johnson, the 38th Ward. Sure, it went for Vallis, but because of the ground game that Senator Martwick had, uh, along with the other members of 38th Ward Dems, our, our good friend David Feller uh, as, as one, and uh, that whole organization um, was able to help bring out um, voters who um, weren't always sold on Johnson, who did had a more uh, recent career in politics, right? Like who is who's Brandon Johnson? weren't as familiar with him. And uh, for there were folks who had heard buzz but wanted to know more about him. And thanks to that ground game, thankfully we're able to, to bring it on home on uh, election day. Jacob, your thoughts. Uh, I would agree in general with uh, with what Carlos and Rosanna said regarding uh, Hispanic voters. But I would also add that uh, when you look at the electorate in Chicago and the uh, Hispanic electorate, it's it's not a monolith. Uh, there's a lot of different uh, ideologies based on age and uh, and other things. So when you look, for instance, at Carlos's ward, the 35th ward or Rosanna's ward, the 33rd ward, a lot of the Hispanic voters in that ward are younger and tend to skew more progressive. Whereas when you look on the southwest side of the 23rd Ward or even parts of the northwest side in the, in the, in the 30th Ward, uh, many of the Hispanic voters there are more conservative. There's a lot that are also first responders, police and fire that tend to vote more conservative. So a lot of them are valid supporters. But even with that said, I do agree. Organizations make a difference. I mean, you saw this in Carlos and Rosanna's wards, but also on the southwest side with Mike Rodriguez in the 22nd Ward, which, of course, was Chewy's uh, award as well. There's, they have a great organization down there and that helped bring out a lot of those, uh, you know, liberal, uh, Hispanic voters for Brandon. So it's, it's a little of both there's, but I think organization has a lot to do with it. All right. Uh, one thing I've completely do not know the answer to this question. And I apologize, Jacob, did the Cook County Democrats, uh, endorse a candidate for mayor of the city of Chicago? No. So we actually have not made any endorsements for mayors since they became nonpartisan. Uh, so the mayor's election has been nonpartisan since 1999 uh, because of a uh, bill that was pushed. I think you've talked about this by Mayor Daley at the time. He didn't want a repeat of uh, Harold Washington ever again. So he worked in Springfield over the years after he became mayor in 89 to make our mayoral elections nonpartisan. And ever since then, the Cook County Democratic Party has said, you know, it's a nonpartisan race, so we don't uh, endorse. Now, of course, in 2019, the chair of the party, Tony Preckwinkle, was running for mayor. And this time around, uh, Tony, of course, was with Brandon. So uh, Tony, as chair, was, of course, helping uh, 
Brandon in her role as uh, you know the county board president and, and fourth board committee person, but the party as a whole uh, did not make a endorsement in the mayor's race. All right, I just wanted to get that clear in my mind. That's uh, what, I, what my vague memory was. All right, let's talk about some uh, just very parochial political issues. Uh, obviously, Mayor uh, Brandon Johnson, mayor elect, I should say, uh, there will create a vacancy when he takes over at City Hall. Uh, he is a Cook County commissioner. Uh, additionally, there will be a vacancy created uh, when State Senator Zayas uh, steps down to be his chief of staff or deputy chief of staff. So, uh, Jacob, you're the man who knows all this stuff. I uh, want to explain uh, what's going to happen, uh, and then I'm going to ask Dan to give whatever gossip he's heard about who, which candidates have already uh, indicated they want to run. So, uh, Jacob, explain what's going to happen first with Brandon Johnson's vacancy. Go ahead. Sure. So uh, as soon as uh, Brandon uh, resigns his position as a uh, county commissioner, that'll set up and start a process to appoint his replacement. Um, it's a vote of the Democratic committee persons that make up his uh, county commissioner district, which includes uh, some wards on the west side of Chicago, like the 24th Ward, 28th Ward, uh, 37th Ward, but also uh, in the suburbs, Oak Park Township and Proviso Township. Um, so the the, uh, the committee persons that make up that uh, district will vote on a weighted vote basis where they vote the number of votes that Brandon got in their ward or township in the 2022 uh, general election that he just ran in. And uh, because Oak Park Township has the vast or has it has a lot of the votes, the most, the plurality of the weighted votes are actually in Oak Park. Uh, Don Harmon, who's the Oak Park Township Democratic Committee person, and also, of course, Senate president, will lead the process as chair of that committee. Um, and usually, uh, though I don't think there's a, a rule or law on this, usually these meetings will happen within about a month of, uh, of him resigning his seat, which I'm sure will take place. He'll have to resign by the time he gets sworn in as mayor on May 15th. Um, and I'm sure that the committee persons in that committee will, will, will hear from, uh, you know, potential interested candidates can present their credentials and, uh, ultimately they'll take a vote. Now I will say, uh, the rules were changed. So, so previously, uh, whoever was appointed to take a seat would serve the entire term, which would be through, uh, actually 20, uh, 28 or sorry, 20, no, 2026. Um, uh, but now, uh, it's been changed. So this appointment will only be temporary and whoever is appointed will have to run as part of the 2024 election uh, next year, no matter what, for the final two years of uh, Brandon's term. So uh, that's how things will work for the uh, commissioner seat. Uh, it's actually a very similar process for the uh, state legislative seats when they are vacated. So State Senator Patsy Onizias, and I should also mention uh, State Representative Lamont Robinson, who's becoming an all, fourth ward alderman, also will be resigning his uh, seat as state rep. Both of those uh, seats will be uh, filled by the Democratic committee persons of their districts. Uh, they'll again vote on that weighted vote basis. And those those meetings will probably again happen within a month of, uh, of, of their resignations. Dan, so who are some of the names that you're hearing uh, that want for these positions? So I have to say in this case, uh, I have not heard yet. Uh, I was actually looking for answers from you, Ben, but you beat me to the question. Uh, <laughs> So, so unfortunately, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't heard anyone. But boy, I, I, I'd be all ears to hear some of the names that you've heard, Ben. I just heard the regular one for. Uh, I don't know anything about the state senate race. Uh, I've not heard any names in that. Now, I've not. I've, I haven't gone looking for them. I've been preoccupied with other things. Uh, but the, oh my God, I've heard so many machinations for the county board seat that have to do with West side politics, who's going to get slated to run. It's like, it's like this game of dominoes. Okay. So Danny Davis is currently the Congressman for the seventh congressional district. Uh, he had a very tough competition in the last primary from Keenan Collins, good friend of the show comes on the show many times. Uh, and, uh, so, Presumably, the, what I hear, the, ru the the rumor I hear, Jacob, you tell me if you hear the same one. Danny's going to step down, and then uh, someone is going to be anointed to run for his seat. Uh, probably uh, Conyers Irvin is what I always hear, who is currently the uh, treasurer of the uh, of city of Chicago, which leaves that va a seat vacant. So someone has to be moved in for that seat, uh, and then it's. Like anybody's guess who will get to uh, be anointed uh, for uh, Brandon Johnson's seat. But it's they're all kind of linked to uh, one another. That's what I've heard. Uh, Jacob, have you heard the same stuff? 
I, I've heard rumors like that, and I've heard that Keena Collins may be interested herself in Brandon Seats. Um, and, and I have heard the rumors about the congressional race. I think Melissa Conyers Irvin has even said she's seeking that seat, and I think she's under the uh, the impression that uh, Danny is uh, retiring and not running again. But I don't know if he's actually said that yet. So there's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of moving parts. And I will say, if there's a congressional vacancy, that's there's no uh, appointment process for that. That's if it were an early vacancy, that's a special election, uh, which is required by the Constitution. So uh, that would be a different uh, thing. But, but you know, Danny's seat is up regardless next year, of course, because it's up uh, every two years. And I, I don't know what's I don't know if he's running again, but Melissa has said that she's uh, planning on running. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember. I don't think she said she's going to run against Danny. I, th- I think she held she, had, back. she didn't say that, but she was under yeah. she's under the impression, I think, that he's that, uh, not running again. But I, I don't know if that's true or not. So. All right. And then, of course, uh, the other important uh, vacancy that opens up uh, for uh, 2024 is state's attorney uh, Kim Fox uh, announced that she will not seek reelection. Uh, it's wide open as to who uh, will win the Democratic primary uh to be the nominee to run against whatever uh, law and order type the Republicans uh, find under a rock to run uh, for that position. Uh, Danny, your thoughts, state's attorney vacancy. uh, Who are some of the candidates you've heard? Um, I haven't heard anyone put their, put their, uh, put their uh, feelers out yet. Uh, But I'm curious to hear who you've heard, Ben. Oh, my God. This guy is ducking and dodging, Jacob. I mean, come on. Where's the old Dan? You know, since he became commissioner, he won't. Uh, well, go ahead, Jacob. I'm, I'm happy to answer because I do know. And, and, you know, some of these have been in the, like there was a Sun-Times article about him. I know that, uh, you know, Bob Fioretti purportedly is thinking about it again. Uh, Richard Boykin, county commissioner and former county commissioner and kind of perennial candidates, uh, both. Uh, there's talk about you know, potentially Dan Kirk, who was uh, first assistant state's attorney under Anita Alvarez running. Um, I will say a candidate that's definitely out there seeking this is, is Clayton Harris, who uh, who was uh, actually an assistant state's attorney in the early 2000s under Dick Divine. And he also uh, uh, worked. He was head of the Illinois Port District for a while. He has a long resume and he actually is a professor of uh, teaches uh, race and policing, I believe, at either uh, I forget if it's University of Chicago or Northwestern. So he's got a great resume. Um, but but I presume there will be many, many candidates coming out of the woodwork. Uh, I will say that speaking from the Cook County Democratic Party perspective, we uh, will have a uh, slating slash endorsement process coming up very soon. So we have meetings uh, June in mid-June, uh, which we call pre-slating, where we hear from potential candidates uh, that want to present their credentials to the party. So I'm sure prior to you know June 15th, when we start those meetings, there'll be a lot more candidates uh, reaching out to us. And then we're going to make our endorsements in August. So it comes up very quick for us, uh, for, for the state's attorney and all of our other races for 2024. Uh, yeah. And, um, I, I would just tell uh, listeners that the key to watch for in this election is will candidates be running uh, sort of against Kim Fox or with Kim Fox. And by that, I mean, she has a legacy. Now this is me speaking. This is not Dan. This is not Jacob. I happen to believe that Kim Fox is the greatest state's attorney in the history of Cook County, at least since I've been alive. An argument could be made for Ben Adamowski, which is way before my time, because uh, he went after corruption, political corruption. He paid a price for it. Richard J. Davis is ancient history, uh, so I won't revisit it. But if you study anything about Chicago's past, they always talk about the 1960 uh presidential race, how the Daily Machine stole it for Kennedy. They were really going to trying to undercut Ben Adamowski. Take a look at the history. They hated Ben Adamowski because he came after the Democrats on issues of corruption, an old ally of Richard J. Daly. That's the only guy, in my opinion, who comes close. This is me speaking. Again, not Jacob, not Dan. Um, the legacy of police torture that was that uh, state's attorneys overlooked uh just the uh, the legacy of just corruption in this town that they overlooked. I believe that uh, Kim Fox was the first state's attorney in my adult lifetime who directly confronted the injustices that are um, that are in our criminal justice system. And all they talk about is Jesse Smollett. We had a field day with Jesse Smollett in the show. We had great delight in talking about the Jesse Smollett case because it was it was so bizarre. It was funny, but to kind of like hold that. 
as the equivalent of, let's say, looking the other way while John Burge and his cohorts are torturing confessions out of suspects. Come on, guys. You're better than that, Chicago. So that's my opinion. But it'll be interesting. I know, Jacob Kaplan, that not everybody in the city of Chicago and the county of Cook agrees with me in that position. And it'd be interesting to see which candidates are running, like to say, denouncing Kim Fox when they run, which candidates are saying they supported Kim Fox's legacy when they run, and which uh, candidates are pulling sort of a Ron DeSantis with pretending as though she doesn't exist. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> that'll be the question. I mean, I will say, you know, whatever people feel about uh, State Attorney Fox, I mean, she she won in 2020 uh, handily, even uh, with with all these issues at the, at the forefront. So the voters of Chicago and Cook County clearly agreed with her. Um, and uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we were talking about this before the show, but there's this attempt continually to run these kind of MAGA type candidates thinking that all Chicagoans want is this co- sort of very one-sided, law-and-order type of, uh, of of elected official. But uh, clearly, whether it was trying to defeat Kim Fox, both in the primary and the general election last time around, whether it was Paul Vallis, whether it was, uh, you know, the, the attempt uh, by uh, Darren Bailey to run against uh, uh, J.B. Pritzker in 2020, you know, the 2022, uh, thinking that he was going to get more support in the city than he did, or in the even in the collar counties around Chicago. So, uh and, and I think Brandon's win shows that people want a more nuanced approach and they want uh, people that that uh, understand that it's not just about locking people up. You know, you need to uh, figure out the root causes and uh, and work on that as well. So I don't know. I think people may try to uh, <laughs> present those, uh, you know, kind of law and order credentials. Uh, some of these candidates might, but I'm not sure that uh, that's going to work out very well in this upcoming election. Dan, what do you anticipate? I think it's going to depend on what the field looks like. I think. I agree with everything that Jacob said. Uh, people forget Kim Fox was reelected twice. Oh, well, she was she was elected twice, right, and reelected resoundingly in Cook County. But how people are going to position themselves, I think that'll depend on how many people are in the primary, um, how much of the electorate um, is cut up between different candidates, and uh, and people will make their decisions based upon how they think they can win the plurality. I, uh, I actually think you were more correct uh, than you realized when you said she was reelected twice because uh, she went through two contentious uh, election battles in 2020. First, there was the Democratic primary. She had to secure the Democratic primary, and Bill Conway was up against her. Now he's an alderman from the 34th Ward, just was elected, uh, or alderman-elect, I should say. Uh, and he ran at her uh, on the Jesse Smollett uh, scandal uh, and ran sort of a hard on a, a law and order campaign. And then after she prevailed there, Danny, she had to go and then defeat, I think his name, if I could do this, O'Brien was his name, the Republican. I can't believe I I pulled that out <laughs> somewhere. Uh, and he ran at her hard on a law and order. Uh, so in effect, she did have to run twice. Uh, it was tough, two tough elections uh, and she prevailed. Uh, so I could see why you would uh, say what you did. All right. Uh, let's close with a couple stories that are in your mind. Uh, I'll start with you, Dan. Uh, you sent me an article today, a fascinating story about McDonald's. Um, take it away. Explain the story and why. Uh, what you, the significance of it. Go ahead. Well, so uh, maybe we'll start with the headline. In the United States, in 2023, you have where McDonald's is found um, to have had 10-year-olds working and you had minors working uh, according to the charges that were put forth by the investigation that the state government of Kentucky had found um, working illegally in horrendous conditions. This is not a third world country. This is in the United States. You've had nationwide um, a push to loosen these rules and this is just the epitome to me of our failures um, to live up to the standards that the leaders of the progressive movement had put forward at the end of the 19th century to the rampant abuses that you had then. And it's still something that we're going through and going on. And it really highlights how we can't say 
that the struggles of trying to get an eight-hour work week, um, that these are things that are in the past, that uh, this is something that we can ignore. This is the warning sign that no, um, that backsliding that's happened on workers' rights since the Ronald Reagan administration uh, has had a horrendous toll. And if this isn't a wake-up call, I don't know what is. That's well put. Yeah, 10-year-olds working at McDonald's is uh, in in the 21st century uh, is a little tough to take. Uh, but there are, again, MAGA, they play by different rules. Uh, they're passing laws in states or proposing laws in states that would uh, dilute uh, the significance of the laws that exist to protect uh, children from this kind of labor. So we live in a very strange political time, Dan, where it's like considered like a stand for liberty somehow or other to dilute, dilute laws that protect children uh, from from work uh, work abuse like this. Uh, it's a sign of liberty to pass laws uh, that make it harder for uh, uh, employee employers to uh, unionize or to collectively bargain. It's a very strange political universe that we live in where up is down and down is up. Very Orwellian, I would say. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll, in many ways, it, it's similar what I was be offering uh, up at the front. Like, There's two sets of standards. So state of Illinois, we have our standards. It's a very progressive, uh, union-friendly state. Uh, it's not that way throughout the rest of the country in MAGA. Uh, quarters. Do you agree with me, Dan? 100%. Yeah, don't forget, Dan started off, he was a union activist, so he's as biased as I am on this front. Uh, Jacob, what story uh, uh, is on your mind right now? Sure. So, uh, you know, it's it's not just uh, Clarence Thomas, and it's not also, we didn't even get into the Paul Vallis campaign finance uh, issues that continue going on. It's also uh, now Herschel Walker. Uh, I just saw this story that I believe was broken by the uh, Daily Beast, that Herschel Walker, of course, the defeated U.S. Senate candidate in, in Georgia, uh, literally, apparently, there's emails where he's soliciting a $500,000 uh, campaign contribution from a big Republican donor, not telling him to send it to his campaign committee as required by law, but instead to his LLC, to his business, which, if that's what uh, happened, is completely illegal. And we apparently there's still investigation going into where this money went and if it was actually spent on his campaign. But you can't just solicit a campaign donation. That's like him soliciting it into his uh, pocket. So I just uh, I can't get over. You know, we talked about Republicans just don't want to follow the rules. I mean, here's another classic example of that. And uh, I'm sure there'll be more to come on this. Yeah, no, that uh, thank you. For, you were the one who alerted me that I had missed that because I've been doing a recording when that story broke. You sent it me. I read it. And I'm just uh, shaking my head. It's just such a blatant violation of uh of, of the rules that exist. And then it's just it's like the general expression of ignorance. Like, oh, that was the rule. I was unaware. It's like the Clarence Thomas people. Wait, I'm not supposed to report that I took a trip on a cruise with this guy? You know, or I, I fly. I'm a regular, <laughs> a regular passenger. Wait a minute. Are you sure I have to report that? Let me get back to you. No, Clarence Thomas said, my friends told me it was okay. You know what I'm saying? My, that'd be like me telling the IRS. No, you understand. My friend told me I didn't have to file taxes this year. Okay. My friend told me. Right? Yeah. Must be uh, right. <laughs> he must be right because he's my friend. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's my secret friend that talks to me in the middle of the night. Uh, yeah, we'll see where this one goes. Uh, if MAGA tries to turn uh, Herschel Walker into some kind of victim of a witch hunt, which is generally what they do in moments like this. Uh, but I'll close, Jacob, by saying just imagine it was a Democrat in Illinois who pulled off this stunt. OK, you know what I mean? The outcry. <laughs> The Tribune editorials. This is outrageous with the Chicago Tribune. Uh, Danny, thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule as water rec commissioner for uh, coming on my humble little podcast. You're looking very, folks, you can't see him, but he looks very dapper. Uh, he's wearing a nice tie and looking very handsome. Thank you very much, Dan. Uh, and of course, Jacob, uh, get back there and study for your bar. You got the bar in how many months? Uh, the end of July. So just a little, two and a half months. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, good luck with that one. Jacob Kaplan, uh, executive director of Cook County Democratic Party. Uh, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.
Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com/internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the US to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement, other restrictions apply.